Happy December. Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Green, and we've got a lot of good stuff for you this week. We talked to Tim Niddle and Afton Locken of Distilled Living and Jared D. Tierley. I think I said that right. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. We talked to him as he uh, wrote a new book that's a, a really cool read about the alcohol industry. Also, in between the two interviews, I'll give you details on our Things We Love holiday giveaway. we got a lot of goodies you already know about Pies and Pints and Gish Pack. But our grand prize, so to speak, I'll tell you about that here in just a little bit. But let's get into this episode and not waste any time as we have a fun chat about bourbon, cocktails, and food. Afton Locken and Tim Niddle of Distilled Living. Afton, Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Now, for those that don't know, Tim talked a little bit before on a previous episode about you know virtual tastings, different things like that. But now we're moving into the holidays. And Tim, you know, most people, you know, kind of want to maybe ramp up their their meals a little bit and maybe pair them with with some uh, fine drinks. You have some some helpful tips uh, for people to do that. Yeah, at least I like to think that they're helpful. They work for me. (laughs) Um, So since I got into the bourbon industry about 12 years ago, it's been kind of my responsibility by default to bring uh, any sort of interesting and fun bourbons and work out the pairings as we go. And that's always sort of become a tradition uh, in my family that, I, that I'm going to I'm going to do that. Um, and I've learned a little bit uh, over the years about doing that. And this year, I'm kind of thinking about it in terms of care packages, because I don't won't be getting together with anybody in person. Uh, but I may be delivering either full bottles or I might be making a little bottle, mini bottles uh, for people. Um, and I really want to give them a whole experience and not just give them a bottle, but, but give them maybe a whole course. Um, so the things that I've learned about working with bourbon and dishes and culinary is, is the first thing to think about bourbon is that it's an aged product. Um, and age tends to pair with age. So, so most of the products are going to be you know, five to 10 years old in, in the making. Uh, and we're, so we're going to look for aged and cured meats, aged cheeses, maybe toasted nuts, which are going to pair really well. Uh, the smoking uh, works well for foods and pairs well with bourbon because of the charring of the barrel. So we're working with complementary flavors to start with. Um, and I like to start with, especially with people who are not as into drinking bourbon as maybe I am, um, starting with the weeded style bourbons, right? There's a reason that Maker's Mark is as popular as it is. It's a soft, easier to get into bourbon. And maybe if you have some folks that you're introducing to bourbons that you're really excited about, start them there or maybe with Larceny, uh, which is another great weeded bourbon. And maybe even give them some, uh, some you know, ice ball molds. Um, bourbon doesn't have to be consumed neat. You know, we want everyone to have a good, enjoyable experience with bourbon. So we want to meet them where they are. Um, so that's kind of my first thought is, is start with new folks with the weeded style. Um, and then as we move into um, the rise uh, and rye bourbon, especially the lower percentages, like maybe an Elijah Craig or a Buffalo Trace, um, those are where I, and those are also going to be a little lower proof. So those are going to be both 90, 94 proof, that range. Um, I like to, I really like to do kind of an antipasta or some sort of a charcuterie tray. So just like I talked about with those aged and cured meats, the salamis, the prosciuttos, the country hams, um, those are going to pair beautifully with that. Um, I love a cave-aged cheese with those kinds of bourbons, um, toasted and candied nuts. Um, that's going to bring out some of the sweet character. Uh, and that kind of creates its own course that way. Um, and from there, um, I like to to go something a little higher proof and maybe a little spicier, uh, like a Wild Turkey 101, uh, which I know a lot of people think back to their college days, but I guarantee if you present <laughs> it to somebody blind, um, people get much more excited about it. Once you strip the any sort of brand memory, personal memory out of it, people really, really like it. Um, that's where we get into the entree. So I don't know about everybody else. Uh, my family entrees usually involve like a roast beef or uh, a whole turkey or a whole chicken, something like that. Um, and that, with bringing a little bit more fat, really um, appreciates well against a higher proof bourbon, uh, maybe a Johnny Drum, you know, 101, something like that. Um, any of this uh, sound familiar to any of your experiences or anything you've tried? I mean, it, it does because uh, you know when when I think of of bourbons, you know, I don't want to come right in at a hundred and twenty four proof to start off. You know, the the evening, um, you, you know, you want to come in something lighter, 
you know, kind of on that ease, especially for those that aren't big bourbon drinkers. You know, I'm just now kind of getting into the the bourbon world a little more. You know, kind of taking that full jump in instead of just kind of you know putting my foot in there. Um, but it's it's always also interesting to hear that the the names of the you know bourbons and whiskeys that you're talking about are the ones that you can kind of go find. They're readily available for the most part, and they're not going to break the bank either. Yeah, exactly. And then you're going to have a common experience with folks, even if you're not present with them, which I think is a really nice thing. And your comment about, you know, starting to get with something that's 124 proof, um, that when you get into that high proof range, like we're talking about like a stag or a bookers or something like that, any of those other barrel proof products, those actually, even for people who are new to high proof, those pair beautifully with kind of your higher fatty, creamy kinds of desserts, because that cream is going to sit on the palate and, and knock off a little bit of the uh, intensity. So I think those are beautiful against um, like a pumpkin pie, especially it's going to bring out the holiday spices, uh, the cinnamon, nutmeg, clove that are going to reflect back, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful pairing. And if, and if maybe the high proof is not your thing, um, the finished bourbons almost universally pair well with chocolate. Um, so Woodford Double Oaked, Makers 46, Angel's Envy. Um, those are just, you can't go wrong with those. They're a little lower proof. They're a little gentler. Even maybe serving them on, an, on a, a nice ice cube uh, with some sort of dark chocolate uh, is absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, it's, you know, the, the concept of derby pie, uh, with the nuts and the chocolate. It doesn't need to be restricted to one weekend a year. I think it's a great kind of dessert uh, for the holidays as well. And I also wanted to touch on, you talk about um, everything I've named so far is kind of the, the big brands. Um, the craft brands have a lot more sort of potential flavor diversity and difference among them, especially when you get into stuff that is matured in a smaller barrel. Um, like Hartfield and Company in a, in a six-gallon barrel, or a, a lot of the craft distillers like MB Roland or Bluegrass Distillers using 15s and 25 gallons. And they wind up being a really, really smoke forward. Um, and so they're a little bit more difficult to get a really beautiful pairing with, except, again, chocolate. Almost universally, if you're picking up a bourbon that, that is new to you and it's a craft bourbon, um, just start with chocolate. I think you're going to make a really, really good pairing out of it. So, so the go-to is is if, if it's maybe not one of the, the big brands that everyone knows about, it's one of the local guys because, you know, a lot of people like to shop local around the holidays, you know, going to their, their craft distiller. Maybe just have that for, for dessert and, and pair it with, you know, some, some bourbon balls or, or chocolate or, or anything like that then, right? Yeah, that's going to be a great safe place to start, uh, at least for kind of this holiday season. And then as you explore the culinary world and bourbon, you can look to the more nuanced flavors and build some more sophisticated pairings. Um, but uh, I think for th that's what it's going to be my plan for this year anyway. So I'm going to I'm going to be using those craft bourbons with chocolates and, uh, and some of the others, as we talked about, and and bring in the high proofs in the middle. So you're keeping it simple now. Say you, you talk about that care package where you might want to send a nice little something to, you know, to your aunt or uncle or brother or sister that, you know, can't come in there, but they're living in a different state. Um, you know, maybe put in some, some nuts, some, some crackers, different things like that. And, and, and a little bit of bourbon or, or what are you thinking on something like a nice little care package that, that you're either dropping off or, or maybe, uh, sneaking out, out the door somehow. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's fantastic. And one really fun thing to do with people that are new to bourbon is to go ahead and give them two or three or four different ones. Um, and talking about crackers, um, crackers, you know, kind of evolved from grains in the same way that whiskeys did with a lot of diversity. So starting with a weeded bourbon and wheat crackers, just so that people get a, a, a you know, a real tangible sense of the difference. And then maybe even going all the way to a rye whiskey, um, like an old forester rye with rye crackers. Uh, and then either of those sides using those aged cheeses and aged meats with it um, is just really spectacular. The only thing I really avoid um, is going to be kind of hot, spicy, piquant food. Um, because people who are new to bourbon, especially the heat on heat is a little much. Um, so, so kind of maybe building a, your charcuterie board around two or three different types of crackers that match those bourbons and rye whiskeys. Um, and then a spectrum of aged and cured meats and cheeses, maybe some berry spreads and things like that. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. 
And then any other, like, you know, you don't want to do this, you know, like, uh, you know, some people, you know, just coming straight out, you know, pouring a glass of, of bourbon for everybody. Um, you know, some, some people that would be a okay, but for others, you know, they, they might not want, want to do that. What, what's kind of maybe something they need to stay away with when it comes to trying to pair things that just don't work. Um, so we talked about, uh, the, the spicy and piquant foods. That's, that's generally one to shy away from, uh, raw onions and bourbon are a struggle. Uh, it's just personal <laughs> experience. I can tell you, um, you don't have to try it for yourself. Um, the, and any sort of, any sort of sharp, acidic, uh, requires nuance right so i tend to shy away from from strong vinegars and things like that that doesn't mean you can't do it and there are cocktails that are absolutely amazing that use bourbon and vinegar um but that's kind of advanced technique so um and then anything really really soft um like mozzarella you know was going to obliterate a lot of the nuanced flavors of bourbon which you know if you're getting somebody started on bourbon you know, maybe, and they're struggling with it, maybe have, give them that. Um, but bear in mind, it's really going to cut down a lot of the, the interest and flavor from it, but it might make it a little bit more approachable. And the other thing that I see a lot is people get really excited about bourbon, especially in Kentucky. And we're starting to see that in a lot of other States and they forget their own personal bourbon journey. Um, so, you know, bourbon, is, they, they, is they forget that initial big burn that just, just happens and, and they don't really remember that everyone else might not enjoy that right off the bat. Exactly. You know, uh, I, I'm not opposed to helping people get in, maybe ship them, uh, so, or deliver them some nice, a uh, nice medium rye bourbon, um, like a Woodford reserve with ale eight, <laughs> you know, let's get some yeah. ginger ale, some good, strong ginger ale in that. Um, which is a beautiful cocktail, just two ingredients. Uh, and it's, it's I was going to say, and that's perfectly Kentucky. And and then for for those that may want to, you know, they're they're not really ready to drink bourbon straight, or even with maybe just the one little mix of of a drink. What are some holiday cocktails and some meal pairings? Because Afton talking beforehand, you you said you might have a few ideas for people to maybe spice up some things and do some some cocktails and and show off maybe some skills. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that Tim has fully covered the bourbon and holiday food pairing piece, because when it comes to me and giving away gifts for Christmas, everybody gets a bottle of bourbon. That's just what you get. So no surprises to all my friends and family, you are all getting bourbon. So I will make sure everybody listens and understands what they can drink it with and enjoy it with. But my personal motto when it comes uh, to bourbon is there really is no wrong way to enjoy it. So like Tim said, if you want to mix it with ale ginger ale, that's wonderful. You know, if you're drinking it uh, with any kind of mixer, any kind of cocktail, with any kind of food, as long as you're liking it, I'm happy. The industry is happy. But that's definitely where cocktails come in is it just makes these really strong spirits more approachable. And of course, not just bourbon. We have tequila, we have gin, we have rum, uh, we have vodka. So I, I love to get geeky about cocktails, you know, and I really appreciate you bringing up this part when it comes to our holiday meals, Jonathan, because it tends to be all about food this time of year. And trust me, I'm all about being all about food. I eat at least three times a day. So totally into it. Definitely a tad more <laughs> over the holidays. But I'm a very firm believer that the right drink enhances and completes your food. So can I get a little geeky about the cocktails and, and kind of my approach to, to doing that with what we're eating? Great. Absolutely. So we need to know, you know, what are we dealing with if we want to pair our drinks, whether it's bourbon or a cocktail properly? I would categorize our traditional American holiday cooking into probably three groups. First, we have our herbs. We see lots of rosemary, thyme, sage. Those get used over and over again. A second group would be our spices. There's lots of cinnamon, clove, ginger, nutmeg, allspice. In a nutshell, that's that's our pumpkin spice, right, that we all can't help but love because we're inundated with it from September 1st till the end of the year. And then the third group I would just lump into as our meat and potatoes category and or meatless and potatoes. I know there's lots of vegetarian cooking out there, but that includes, of course, beef, poultry, pork, um, but also squashes, root vegetables for this time of year, leeks, greens, chestnuts, walnuts, pecans, apple, cranberry, pumpkin. Those are kind of the, the central ingredients that we see in a lot of our foods. So now we know uh, what we're working with. Uh, so what there's three approaches that I take 
to pairing cocktails with our ingredients, with our flavors. And so um, the first would be to use the flavors directly in a cocktail. Uh, the second would be to balance the flavors with your cocktail. And then the third would be to create a complement or some kind of a backdrop that allows the flavors in your food um, to really pop. So I think the simplest one is just using our, our ingredients and our flavors directly in our, in our cocktail to go with what we're enjoying with our food. So, I mean, what comes to mind immediately is that infamous pumpkin spice, you know, cinnamon, cloves, ginger, allspice, um, all the good things. And those do go very well with an, an array of bourbons, especially those higher rise um, that Tim was talking about. So, for me, what I will be doing to to use this in a cocktail over the season, we'll be making a, a pumpkin pie spice syrup. So it's just, you know, simple syrup. It's so easy. I know the listeners have, have at least a little bit of experience in drink making. So we've got one part sugar to one part water. And then I'll, I'll be steeping mine with either mulling spices or a little bit of pumpkin spice that comes mixed together. Or you can kind of play with the amounts of cinnamon versus the amount of clove versus the amounts of allspice that you want to put in there. And you can even use a pumpkin puree, you know, get that fruit, that, um, that fruit element into, um, your syrup. And that, you know, that's a, a staple ingredient for not just cocktails, but, you know, any drink, if you want to put a little sweetener in your coffee that work for in the morning or, or with your holiday desserts, that's going to be delicious in there. You could do, um, if we're sticking with bourbon as our spirit, you could do just an old fashioned where instead of a regular syrup, you now have a pumpkin pie syrup and use black walnut bitters for your for your dashes and a little cinnamon stick garnish. It's a really simple drink, but we're it's a direct use of our of our holiday flavors. So that's kind of the easiest way to go about it. Uh, the second approach is is balancing the flavors. And this is where I find it to be a little more fun um, because what we're doing with balance is let's think about what are the five tastes that we as humans can detect. We've got sweet, we've got sour, we've got bitter, salty, and umami. Yes. So when we as people, we the more of those five that we can touch on with a single bite or a single meal, the more we like it. Tim actually uh, gave me the reference a while back of Doritos chips. I mean, how how addictive are those? Yes. Yeah. And if you think about it, they have every five of those elements in there. They're mommy, they're bitter, they're salty, they're sour, there's there's tons of sugar in them. They're really good. We cannot help but love them. So kind of going for that, you know, five uh, tastes goal in, in balancing a cocktail of food is the approach that I really like to take. So let's look at our herb category that I mentioned, thyme, sage, rosemary. You know, those are very umami flavors, probably salty. They've been um, salted and roasted with meats and oils, things like that. So if we're adding balance, we want to find some sweetness, some sour and something bitter in our cocktails to complete that circle. So sticking with uh, seasonal flavors and seasonal ingredients, I would definitely go for cranberry. Cranberry's got a nice tart puckery flavor that kind of gives us that bitter element. Um, throw in some orange. Orange really brightens drinks very well. And of course there's a natural sweetness to it. So with something, you know, cranberry, orange, and fruity, I would absolutely go for a margarita. Uh, number one, I, I love them. They're easy to use. And number two, I'm going to be honoring my mother in my cocktails this year. She was really supposed to be visiting, but we're going to play it safe. Uh, nobody's going to be meeting long distance that requires flying an airplane. So I will just be honoring her in spirit, literally through a margarita cocktail. That is her favorite. So you know, well, and that's my wife's favorite too. So I, I totally understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Have one, do, um, do a cranberry orange margarita and, uh, you know, throw a little lime in there. Of course, it's not really a margarita without some lime. So you get a bit more of that sour element and, and you've covered, you know, think of, of pairing something like that, uh, with, with roasted Turkey or with stuffing. I mean, that's why that cranberry sauce goes so well with that stuff. It's got a lot of sweetness and tartness combined that pairs really well with our traditional foods. So kind of replicating in that drink is gonna do really well. And I, I will say, um, just for a little extra fun, you, you fellas talked about some more refined um, holiday dining experiences in your background and your growing up years. Mine were a little more, I don't know, um, retro, I guess you could say. One of, one of our holiday staples, I have to admit, was jello salad. Have you guys ever eaten jello salad? 
I've heard of it. Okay, it's an experience. So I was raised a Kentucky lady, but I was born in North Dakota. And Jello salad, I'm sure, is still a holiday staple up in that part of the country. Um, so we always had Jello salad and that old uh, sweet potato dish, you know, with the marshmallows baked on top. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of cooking I was dealing with. So I think just for fun, in honoring my mother and and her sort of retro style cooking, I'm going to be doing um, cranberry orange margarita jello shots it can totally be done Ooh, yeah just, okay i like it just add gelatin so um jello shots are getting classy these days and and they're fun and it's it's a different way to do a drink um and it's a little bit safer i think if it were not 2020 i would be talking more about batching drinks and punches and things that everybody would be sharing as a community bowl we're not doing that there's a pandemic this year in case anybody happen to forget. So keeping individual servings is going to be a little bit safer. So I thought it would be a little playful to do uh, a gelatin kind of cocktail and and something of those components where it's that sour formula, you have your spirit, you've got um, your sweet and some juice is really easy to turn into jello. So if you feel, if, feel, if anybody's feeling playful with their cocktails, that's going to be my, my kitchen playtime for sure. Um, and then last, that third component I mentioned was or that third approach was kind of complementing or backdropping your flavors. So I would really go for um, pear and pear is a really nice seasonal fruit that's very soft. It has a light sweetness. Um, it's it's a good complement to you know our, our meats, our beef, poultry, and pork. It goes well with cinnamon. It's a really nice pairing with cheeses. Walnut does well with it. And then I'd spice it up with ginger. Again, ginger is a nice, light, sweeter spice. It's not going to overpower your drink or your food too much. Um, so any kind of pear ginger concoction is going to do really well with any course, you know, appetizer, dessert, or anything in between. Um, and, and it's also very versatile with your spirits. So you could do, you know, a pear sour where you've got a citrus vodka, ginger syrup, some pear juice, the lemon juice. Um, you could turn it into a fizz by using gin instead. Keep your pear syrup, throw in gin keep some lemon for that brightness and then top it with sparkling wine. If you wanted to do bourbon, I would just, you know, replace the gin with bourbon and replace your sparkling wine with, with ginger ale. So these are softer, lighter seasonal ingredients that are going to help all the other flavors pop. So there's a lot of directions uh, you can go with your cocktails. I, I don't think you can go wrong as, as long as you're enjoying it and kind of sticking to those principles of of either matching our flavors, balancing them, and trying to hit those five uh, tastes that we can sense as much as possible, or creating a backdrop that will really let everything else sort of highlight. And, and for for Afton, Tim, but both of you, I love, especially around you know Christmas, in between Christmas and New Year's, I love to eat all the holiday cookies. I have a slight problem. Um, I'm admitting it. Uh, <laughs> I probably go too many times to the dessert dessert bar. What are some good things that might pair with that? You know, later in the day, uh, you know, when you want to have a couple cookies, or you know, um, depending on where you live, some Buckeyes or or things like that. What might pair well with those? Oh, I can definitely hop in here. So last winter. I had a many months long ongoing home experiment of which bourbon goes best in hot chocolate, because what is a cookie in the wintertime without hot chocolate? It's only a cookie, but it becomes amazing when we add it with some some boozy cocoa. Yes. So so my final uh, assessment was Old Forester 86 was the perfect pairing for any kind of hot chocolate. It's it's lighter. It's softer. It's got these really pleasant kind of banana notes in the flavor, which are just delicious with a creamy chocolate hot beverage. So that's going to be my first, my first submission on that one. I like that, Tim. Do you have anything, if I just want to, you know, just a straight up bourbon, no cocktail with a, a nice cookie and uh, um, some desserts? Yeah, I'm going to make one very specific recommendation, uh, which, which I normally don't do, but, with, but for cookies, um, I'm a huge fan of the Boone County small batch. Um, it's a higher rye, but it doesn't present that way. And to me, it is like liquid cookie. It is this combination <laughs> of sugar cookie with a little bit of cinnamon and a little bit of nutmeg and almost a hand of chocolate underneath. Um, and there's just, it just wants to almost have a buttery character. And so um, for snicker, snickerdoodles or chocolate chip cookies or uh, anything like that, it, 
it is just my personal, you know, affection right at the moment as the Boone County small batch. Uh, I love it. I love it. Afton, Tim, this was great. Gives, gives me a lot of ideas. Um, we'll see if I can pull any of them off. Um, you know, uh, but, but it does sound like everything. One of the biggest things that everyone has said, keep it simple, uh, keep it smart and, and just kind of go with stuff that you like and remember your journey. Uh, with with bourbons or, or different um, spirits and, and what you you've enjoyed along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Afton Tim, thank you you all so much for for coming on here and sharing uh, some holiday cocktails, some bourbon meal pairings, what goes well with each, and and uh, I look forward to seeing folks try these at home. Thank yeah. you so much. Great topic. Appreciate it. I hope they let us know how it turns out. Thank you again to Tim Niddle and Afton Lockin of Distilled Living for giving us some insights on some food pairings with bourbon, some cocktails that you can also make so you can have some good times uh, if you're throwing a little get-together for friends and family, social distance, of course, uh, during these times. And before we get to Jarrett, the Things We Love holiday giveaway, we told you about pies and pints, told you about the gish packs, but guess what? I've got a nice bottle, that's right, a 750 milliliter, a fifth of Chattanooga Whiskey Cask 111. I think it might be my favorite, uh, just easy grab off the shelf bottle of whiskey right now. And two whiskey glasses to give away as part of our Things We Love holiday giveaway. Check that out our Instagram page tomorrow at Hop Spirits. You can also find some more information on Facebook and Twitter, also at Hop Spirits, all one word. But that's right, the Things We Love holiday giveaway gets underway tomorrow. Find it on our social media. And now let's get back to the fun as we talk to Jarrett Dieterly. Did I say that right, Jared? Uh, yeah, you did. There you go. Dieterly. Yep. Dieterly. Dieterly. I, I see. I knew I was going to mess that up. Uh, Jared researches and writes on regulatory affairs, alcohol policy, many other things for our street. Also does some few other fun things. Uh, and he even wrote a book. So, Jared, thanks for coming on here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and, uh, and chat booze. I, I was gonna say, I you know, looking at what you do for a living, you you love booze just like the rest of us. But I just feel like you're way smarter than all of us. <laughs> I, it's funny because I feel the opposite. I feel way <laughs> dumber because I, I came into this from the policy side, and so then I've spent the last you know decade trying to uh, you know I always liked uh, 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 spirits and 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 beer and other, you know, uh, alcoholic beverages, but, but I've been spending the last decade, I feel like trying to catch up more on that side of it. And so I, you know, will meet people in the distilling or brewing community who, you know, can go so deep on beer and I've, I've gotten, you know, better at that now, but, uh, but I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm the dumb one in the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would, I would disagree with that. Um, but for, for those that may not understand exactly what you do when you talk about that policy stuff, uh, what what is it that you do for our street? Because um, I know you're the editor of the Drinks Reform, right? And do some other work for them too, right? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. The uh, R Street Institute is just a policy research, nonpartisan policy research organization. So it basically means that uh, me and the people that that work there uh, uh, think and research and write for a living about public policy topics um, and how to ideally improve public policy to make people's lives uh, better day to day. So we do all kinds of different topics. I do a lot of stuff in the regulatory space, um, you know, things outside uh, the alcohol markets, but also, of course, uh, the alcohol markets, which has been taking up most of my time recently, A, because of the, the book coming out, but also because of uh, the COVID shock. It's it's upended so much of the alcohol policy uh, landscape overnight that it's been really busy. So uh, yeah, but I, I do a, a bunch of different kinds of regulatory stuff and uh and yeah, it's, uh, as I said, I, I got into kind of that space first. And then the more I kind of peeled back the layers of the onion when it came to alcohol markets, I realized, you know, if there's ever an example of an industry that is incredibly outdated with rules uh, that are just archaic and very burdensome and and maybe don't make a lot of sense in our modern marketplace, it's it's alcohol. So there's just so much fodder there to, uh, to dive into. So that's why I got uh, uh, particularly interested in the alcohol space. I mean, what do you what do you mean? I mean, I I feel like it's just going so smoothly in the alcohol <laughs> world. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, you know, this uh, perfect mark marketplace. I wish it was that easy. I, I might be out of a job, but it would be a better world. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know where I, where I'm based out of in Kentucky is like the perfect ex- example of of this. We're we're a 
state that touts its bourbon, and yet there are still many counties that you can't even buy bourbon in. Right. So you know, yeah, I I, I totally understand that. And did did your what what made you decide to write the book? And the book for those that don't know is called "Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink: uh, Sixty Five Cocktails to Protest America's Most Outlandish Alcohol Laws." What made you decide to do something like this? Because I don't feel like this is just something you just easily dive right into. Yeah. Uh, so it, it started, um, you know, again, as as uh, a policy person getting more and more interested in the drinks landscape. And that inevitably led one of the things I really try to do is to talk to people in the industry and uh, interview them and, um, you know, write, uh, you know, either journalistic features or, uh, you know, use them in some of the uh, policy pieces that I'm writing, just because I feel like, you know, it's one thing to sit kind of in this you know, theoretical ivory tower, right? Where you're just kind of pronouncing to the the masses like ideas on how to improve things. But the people that really live it are, are the key because they know what's impacting their their day-to-day life most. So it really started for me uh, uh, over a period of years interviewing and getting to know a lot of people in the drinks space uh, all across the country. And, and two things really stuck out to me. One is that I started hearing a lot of the same issues from them. Uh, and two, I, I noticed that it wasn't a one state problem. It was a 50 state thing. And that's because of the way that the cookie crumbled with our legal system surrounding alcohol after prohibition. So much of the power was devolved to the state and, and local level, even county level sometimes, uh, that, that, uh, that all across the country, distillers and, and brewers and, and bartenders and, and liquor store owners were dealing with just a host of silly laws that uh, oftentimes had a lot of commonalities, sometimes were unique to a state, but everywhere there was this theme of outdated uh, protectionist laws that were hurting people from doing what they wanted to do for their living and growing their businesses in a, in a healthy, productive way. And so I, I, I started thinking, you know, it'd be neat to do a some kind of a systematic overview of what's going on uh, out there in in uh, America, in in the drinks landscape, as far as as laws and, and regulations that are affecting people. But but I also wanted to make it approachable. You know, I mean, you, I, I could sit here all day and write like really complicated you know, white paper, like tome that no one would read. So I, I wanted to also make it fun and accessible. And, and given that it is alcohol, which is an inherently fun uh, topic, I, I thought what, you know, better way maybe than to kind of feature some of the most ridiculous laws from each state, uh, which I did in my book, and then uh, pair them with a, uh, a cocktail recipe kind of inspired by the law or, um, you know, in, in some way maybe connected to it um, or featuring maybe a producer in, in that particular state. So th- that's what led me down the path to to do the book. And, and again, I wanted to make it fun and readable, um, entertaining, and hopefully a little bit witty uh, for people and, and kind of part trivia, part bizarre history, part uh, uh, you know, cocktail book. And so that, that, that's what led me to do it. And that's how the book ended up the way that it ended up. Uh, I was going to say it's a fun read because you, you kind of hit, hit, hit the nail on the head for me. It's, it's definitely part trivia because now I sound smarter when I'm talking to my friends and I can drop some, some cool knowledge. Uh, but, but also you do get some really cool, uh, you know, cocktails, um, that are inspired by some of those laws that don't make any sense. Um, and we'll touch on those here in a little bit. Uh, but you also highlight some some amazing people uh, that have done some stuff in the spirits world. Um, what was it like writing about those those things? You know, because I feel like that's a real interesting approach to to, to bring all that together. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually uh, an idea that um, I, I think it was actually my editor kind of had talked. To, me and my editor kind of came up with it when we were talking. Is kind of interspersing in the book uh, features of people that actually were, were dealing again with some of these laws in, in, in their everyday life. So, uh, you know, a distiller uh, from Virginia, a bar owner uh, from Ohio, I interviewed, um, you know, all different people that uh, were were actually, uh, again, dealing with either one or several kinds of crazy uh, laws that were uh, really limiting the, their ability to grow. And I want, and I feel like, you know, telling stories is what ultimately changes hearts and minds and hearing from and featuring the people that are uh, working so hard because, it, it, you know, starting a, a, a craft uh, alcohol uh, facility or, you know, running a, a restaurant or bar is, is everyone that, you know, is listening to your podcast well knows is, is really, really, really tough work. It's among the toughest work that 
uh, I think you can go into uh, as far as uh, industries and lines of work. And so I just thought it was important to uh, talk about it and bring it to life a little bit. Again, make it less abstract. You know, it's it's fun to have kind of the trivia pieces, but it's also like here, here's how that law actually, what it's doing in someone's life and all the negative costs uh, of that. So that, that's why I didn't, another thing that I did again to create a little levity was also uh, doing some kind of historical profiles of uh, famous bootleggers or moonshiners throughout American history. It was important to me to kind of uh, make people realize that government and alcohol in America has always had a, a complicated kind of frenemy relationship. Um, if, you know, they're on a Facebook relationship, it would be, it's complicated because we've, we, you know, from the whiskey rebellion onward, even before that, really, uh, we, we've always had this tension between the government overstepping its hand and then people in the alcohol marketplace either finding a way around that or somehow pushing back on it. Uh, and that dynamic's still very much at play. A, a different set of laws today, uh, often, but that dynamic's still very much at play. So I wanted to also not just have a 50-state survey of what's going on, but also a, a kind of a, a vertical survey throughout history from, from you know, the founding of our country onwards. And, and with a book like this, I feel like there's a lot of research that has to go into it to, to make it like you did. It's It's got a lot of great trivia, a lot of great stories, some really cool cocktails. How much time and effort went into researching all of this? Because like I said, you run a, a wide gamut on it. Yeah, uh, that's another question that I that I've often gotten about the book. And it, it, it's interesting. It it uh, it's hard to calculate it exactly, but it was over you know a period of years really that research was done that ultimately went into the book. I mean, since I've been doing this, every time I would run across you know some just kind of outlandish, silly law somewhere. I would, I would just kind of keep track of it. Um, and for a while it started as a word document and then eventually I got, as it grew, it got more organized into a spreadsheet. Um, and, and, you know, just over time I had some, uh, uh, some colleagues that, uh, would send me stuff or help research stuff, uh, on it over time. And it just, um, it just grew. And, and, and then kind of that, that led to kind of the idea of, well, we, we should do one for, for each state. Um, and the only kind of, uh, a little bit tricky part at the end was making sure that I had a good representation from each state. One of the things that happens a lot, as I alluded to earlier in, in the alcohol marketplace, is there'll be some states that have like a really unique, like one-off law, like Indiana's warm beer law that says that gas stations and convenience stores can uh, only sell beer if it's room temperature. That's very unique to you in, to Indiana. There's not a ton of states that have exact parallels to that. Sometimes there'll be some similar ones, but most of the time, in many of the cases, some of the laws I feature it would, you know, 10 or 15 states would have some version of that law. So it was figuring out, you know, do we feature South Dakota for this one or do we do North Carolina? Um, and just kind of fitting the pieces of the puzzle in, because again, I wanted to show that that there were these versions of silly laws across all 50 states. So that that was a little stressful at the end. It was almost like a jigsaw puzzle, making sure all the pieces could fit in. Um, and that's why I ended up actually featuring 65 laws uh, uh, total, just because I was like, all right, you know, it, it, I have some leftovers, some duplicative ones. And I, I want to make sure that I get all the craziness into one volume. <laughs> well, and, and it's amazing too, to me that, you know, as I've done this and just done a little more research myself, how some of these laws really thwart business, you know, like I, I think of my home state where I grew up in, in West Virginia, and they had a law that said, you know, what beer couldn't be more than like four or 6% alcohol. Uh, you're not going to get a whole lot of brewers to, <laughs> to to start start up there yep. and things like that. And I, I guess I you know I was younger at the time, so I didn't really understand. But you know, once they lifted that cap, that's when Yingling and so many others came into the state. Mm -hmm. And then you actually had your own. Um, it's just amazing how, and that was in the two thousands, you know, yeah. that wasn't even that, that long ago, really. Yeah. Weak beer laws are, uh, or some people have called them 3.2 laws, uh, usually goes back to how they originated it, you know, up in, I think now there's only one true 3.2 law that beer can't be over 3.2, uh, alcohol content, uh, percent alcohol content, uh, in Minnesota, but there's still a bunch of States that have gotten rid of 3.2, but now they've raised it to like four or five. Uh, it's still very very low, but but those so-called weak beer laws are a great example of. Uh, they're almost kind of a, a microcosm of the alcohol uh, legal landscape because they have their roots uh, back about a century to uh, the end of prohibition uh, when 
uh, uh, FDR was trying to kind of start loosening some of the grip around prohibition. And uh, what they did is, is pass a federal law that gave states the ability to allow the sale uh, and manufacture of 3.2% beer, the idea being that it would it still worked under the 18th Amendment because it could be defined as not uh, intoxicating the 18th Amendment banned intoxicating alcohol, um, and so that's kind of where it started. These uh, states uh, passed that at the time. It was kind of like a, a reform, right, a liberalization of the laws. But then momentum, you know, just a status quo kind of um, a stasis. Uh, just that that they didn't revisit it for you know almost a century. And so then fast forward to modern times, as you alluded to, into the 2000s, and you know a. a a handful of states have these 3.2 laws still in the books. And then at that point, they're way, uh, way restrictive uh, on the restrictive side of things because they're not uh, allowing, I mean, pretty much any, you know, imperial IPA uh, in existence is going to be over that threshold, right? So it was locking all these craft beers out of, out of the uh, beer market. So it's such a good example of how to understand alcohol history or uh, alcohol policy, you have to understand alcohol history, and then to show how an outdated law over time can, uh, uh, come to do something totally different than what I was intended to do and, and really hurt uh, entrepreneurs in the drinks world. And, and then to, to kind of segue, you know, there are some that I, I just consider, I'm like, I have no idea why that was a law. Um, a couple of the ones that I really enjoyed in this book uh, were the uh, $1 margaritas are illegal in uh, New Mexico. Yes. You know, heaven, heaven forbid we have a fun happy hour in Massachusetts. But I think my favorite one and just, the Zion Curtain in Utah, mm. I just don't understand understand that. Like that that just makes no sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, for those unfamiliar, the Zion Curtain is just a, a, a rule that basically requires some kind of a wall or partition or buffer zone between the actual bar tender making the drinks in a Utah bar and the customer base. Um, it originally like required an actual like, like physical wall, you know, floor to ceiling, like totally blocked the view of it. The idea being that, you know, it's okay to get your cocktail, I guess, but you can't watch it being made. Uh, I never fully understood that distinction. Another I, one that's I guess very heaven forbid you to go home and do it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess. Yeah. They don't want, they don't want anyone to learn anything when they're at the, uh, when they're at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> another fun one, you know, I know you're uh, based in Kentucky. So another fun one is, uh, uh, you, you alluded to the dry counties in Kentucky. I thought it was, uh, uh, funny dry, you know, dry counties are, are in uh, about a dozen states now still, but uh, a lot of uh, states have now had this kind of intermediate category, which they called uh, moist. And mm -hmm. uh, Kentucky's got uh, several of those and, and that can mean all different kinds of things. My favorite one I found from Kentucky was uh, uh, they, they have, uh, I think, at least one or two counties that are dry, that are dry, but considered moist because the only place in the county that can actually sell alcohol is a USGA uh, approved golf course, which I thought was so hilarious in so many ways because it, it again, it's so illustrative of, of the alcohol policy space because it shows, first of all, how much lobbying clout can matter. It's very obvious what happened there. The, the owners of, of the golf course and, and country clubs, you know, went and lobbied for this carve out to it. Um, B, it, it shows, you know, again, very antiquated law. And then C, it, it, you couldn't come up with like a more, um, you know, unintendedly elitist law. I think if you tried where it's just like, okay, like the people that are going to the country club, which are presumably like wealthier, you know, country club set can drink booze all day long, but everyone else in the County, forget about it. And so I just, I felt like it was such a uh, wonderful, uh, uh, example of, of some of the, uh, uh, forces that you see across the alcohol legal landscape. Uh, yeah. And I can, I can, I, I can't top that, that craziness, but I can kind of point to that where I previously worked at the County, the city, the County seat in the city, uh, the was, was, you know, kind of the wet, you know, what you would call wet these days, you know, you could buy liquor and it's always been that way. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the last places in Kentucky, like, going down I-75 that you could get beer or, or, or liquor. Yeah. And it, and I was always told that they, those <laughs> liquor store owners were the biggest proponents of dry counties south of them for the long, <laughs> the longest time because it was good for their business. Exactly. Yeah. It makes, it makes sense. Yeah. And, and you see that, uh, in so many places, I mean, you'll see certain, uh, licensees or, uh, based on geographical location, certain retailers will, 
uh, have something that is uh, some way in which the structure is benefiting them and creating essentially a windfall for them or some kind of almost like government uh, uh, sanctions uh, form of monopoly, really. And they've they've existed and continue to exist because of that. And that creates a lot of reliance interests, right? I mean, they rely on that. That's their uh, piece of, of the pie that has been kind of carved into the legal code and left that way for decades and decades and decades. And so they're often the proponents that are most protective of that not changing over time. Um, and so uh, you see that again in so many of these situations where the law is very outdated. It might have originally been put in for you know, uh, outdated uh, prohibition era concerns about alcohol, but now really the defense of it is shifted to more people that have uh, and businesses that have some kind of a reliance interest on it that want to keep it in place for uh, economic reasons for themselves. And so it's just really interesting how it shifts over time and kind of what the forces are that are that are protecting the status quo in the alcohol space. And then my, my last question for you is what's the one law that always kind of stands out in your mind that is just so weird that or unproductive that you just have to talk about it? Yeah, uh, this is funny. It's tough because you could answer it a lot of different ways. Uh, I, I think that I always like to answer it in two parts by, by saying that, um, that, that as far as kind of just goofy law that is so obviously protectionist. Um, it, it, I referenced it earlier in that Indiana, I just find it so amazing that they allow gas stations, convenience stores to sell beer, but they literally legally prohibit them from plopping them in a refrigerator or in an ice chest. Uh, they can serve wine chilled, um, but they cannot serve beer chilled. Uh, why does it exist? It exists because a liquor store licensee, different type of licensee, uh, works very hard to protect their status as the only licensee, retail licensee in Indiana that can sell cold beer. So again, they don't want they don't want the gas stations to be able to sell cold beer uh, too. It's such an anti-consumer, inconvenient law. Uh, it's funny, the convenience stores and gas stations have lobbied over the years to get it changed. They finally got the right to get cold wine, as I referenced. Uh, one one um, convenience store owner actually uh, started installed a couple of booths and started selling uh, burritos at his gas station um, and then got a restaurant uh, license, which allowed him to sell cold beer. Uh, but then the uh, state uh, government officials being lobbied by the liquor stores freaked out about that and uh, closed that loophole uh, too. So it's been this kind of game of cat and mouse um, that you just look, you know, you step back and like, what are we doing here? You know, why, why are we doing this? Why are we creating all these um, you know, silly uh, legislative games that are going on. Um, why not just, you know, modernize this like like every other state, uh, uh, you know, has done uh, for the most part um, and allow, you know, refrigerated beer to be sold by the licensees that, that can sell it. The other one that I, that I often feature, it's not really a, a law, but it is uh, a system that's still in place in um, over a dozen states is, is what are known as controlled states. Uh, that just a jargony term for the government is actually running the retail operations of the distilled spirits in those states. So my st uh, state of residence in Virginia is a control state. Uh, I have to go to a government operated, employed, staffed, um, uh, uh, and maintained store ABC store, it's called, to get uh, distilled spirits. Um, they're always kind of these drab, like 1950s era, like feeling stores, always have uh, limited selection, usually have higher prices than private retailers in states where, where you can sell distilled spirits. Um, and that just creates a whole host of problems. Uh, for example, even distilleries, micro distilleries, craft distilleries in Virginia, in order to sell their own spirits on site, they technically have to become an ABC agent store. And the ABC still takes a huge markup out of their sales, even though the ABC system is doing nothing to sell those bottles. Um, it also means that if you're a distillery and you uh, try to uh, pitch your products to the ABC store, if they don't want to carry those products, you're locked out of the entire state marketplace in your own backyard. If it's a private retailer, you can just go to the other retailer down the street and repitch your products to him and hopes he carry, carries it. But if the ABC system doesn't take your bourbon that you want to be sold in their stores, then you're effectively locked out of your whole backyard. Uh, so it's just that all-encompassing power that can really make or break uh, small craft producers, I find to be uh, really quite terrifying, frankly, and just so 
um, out of touch in our modern 21st century marketplace um, and kind of having everything at your at your fingertips as a consumer. So I always feature those two, one because one's just really goofy and the other one because it just shows the stakes kind of at play. Uh, I'll say I, I've, I live close enough to the Virginia border that I visited an ABC store once or twice and they're just a couple rows of things and it's not very, yeah. very exciting in there. And then now I come into Kentucky and we have pretty much huge mega liquor stores. So, yeah, you know, well, and, and I think it, it's amazing. Like when I go into like a, a liquor stores in Kentucky, when I visited and other uh, states, like people by and large, there's some exceptions, but you don't have to go to that store. But by and large, people in those stores know what they're talking about. If you ask them for say a recommendation for a good triple sec that maybe isn't quite the price point of like a Cointreau, but, you know, still going to make you a really nice margarita, you know, they'll have thoughts about it and they'll, you know, bring you over and be like, oh, these are the different price points. This one's a pretty good comp for that. Um, but if you, if you tried to get anything out of, you know, the, the people that staff the ABC stores in Virginia, they, they, they don't know anything about the spirits and take no interest in it. And it's kind of like the perverse die dynamics and incentives that, that, uh, those employees have. So it's just overall like a really depressing experience as a Virginia <laughs> consumer compared to like places like Kentucky, where if you walk into a whiskey bar or a, uh, a store that sells whiskey, like, you know, you can just, you could talk for an hour with the person about different kinds of whiskey. Uh, Jared, I, I really appreciate you hopping on here to talk about your book, which is called Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink. It's out now. It's a fun read. I, I recommend uh, if you're looking for a great Christmas gift, this is perfect for the uh, bourbon beer lover in your life. Or if you're just looking for a fun read, it's a, it's a great one. I appreciate it much. It. Yeah, thank you very much yeah. for having, having me on, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, it's unlike alcohol, you can uh, most alcohol you can ship it across state lines too. So, <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> you. True. I appreciate you having me on, um, and it's always fun to talk about this stuff. Uh, it was a lot of fun talking with Jarrett, and I hope we get him back on in the future. Uh, his book is a great read. So much interesting facts in there uh, that that you'll be a little a bit of a trivia buff when it comes to the alcohol industry like i said check us out on instagram facebook and twitter at hop spirits all one word for our things we love holiday giveaway how you can win all those great prizes and don't forget to follow our friends on instagram one sip beer review find them at one sip beer review for near daily beer reviews uh, they do some other fun videos cool giveaways a lot of fun check them out at one sip beer review on instagram until next time cheers everyone